So tonight, uh, we're still in the series called Foundations, and um, we've been doing that for the last little while, digging down to the roots of what we believe, because we believe it's one of the most important things we can do. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, uh, my wife and I, Lindsay, were about to go on holiday, and two nights before we were about to go away, um, we got this really aggressive knock at half one in the morning, and uh, I... We've been watching a lot of Criminal Minds, so so I immediately went to it's probably a sleepwalking axe murderer or something like that. Um, so I did that. So I pulled on clothes and started heading down the stairs. And I don't know if anyone else does this, but I, I started to look around for weapons just in case. And I was like, "There's there's an umbrella down there. You know, I can just like that at them as they open the door if it's um, if it is an axe murderer. I'm sure that'll help." So I I got out of the door and then I did the kind of a manly hello. And then our, uh, it turns out it was our neighbor who was at the other side of the door, and she's a retired nurse in her 60s, so probably the least threatening person you'd ever meet. Um, but the reason why she was talking aggressively was it turns out that her ceiling was about to collapse from water, which isn't good. Um, and so for the next hour, I spent uh, some time trying to help her get rid of all this water that was pouring in through her bathroom, switching off all of our water supplies, calling her insurance, trying to figure out what was going on. Um, which was a, wasn't a nice way to start a holiday. But a few weeks later, and everything sorted, but we had a plumber come around, and the plumber checked out all of the work that we'd had done, because uh, we'd had some work done in our bathroom the previous year. And he said the work wasn't particularly well done, and that some corners had been cut, and we think it probably was to save money for us and for him. And uh, it's likely that there's been a slow leak for the last year that's been dripping at the back of our bathroom. And we didn't notice about it because it was behind our wall, and our neighbor didn't notice because it was slow enough that the wall was was kind of soaking it up. Until eventually, all of the water gathered and it gave way, and she didn't have a ceiling anymore. <laughs> Thanks for she does now. It's back in its right place. But what, uh, why am I telling you that? It's because I think it's so important for us to think about our foundations. And actually, it can be easy for us to ignore them or forget about them or to cut corners but long term, it will have a huge impact on us, on the way that we see ourselves, on the way that we relate to God, and in the way that we grow. And that's why we're spending this length of time in Foundation Series, we're doing it right up till Easter, because we believe that going through each of these topics um, is so helpful for us as we grow as Christians. And I don't know about you, but I find it so helpful already to do this, as we've gone through a number of different things, like understanding who Jesus is, understanding forgiveness, what it means to have faith, reflecting on a lifestyle of prayer, reminding ourselves of the importance of scripture, understanding the way that God leads us, and the reality of spiritual warfare. We've gone through each of those things, and it's been so helpful. And if you haven't listened to them, then please do check them out online. I'd highly recommend it. But tonight, I want to talk about discipleship. Um, it's a word that we use a lot in Central. It's a big word. Um, if you've been around for a while, you probably know that. And you probably also know that lots of the way that we structure our church is around this idea that we're called to be people, disciples who make disciples. And the question I have for us tonight is, do we actually really know what that means? <laughs> if we were honest, do we, really, do we know what the word means? Um, it can be easy for us to use a language to get used to using that kind of language, but not actually reflect on what it means for us. Because I think it's really important, the word disciple is the most commonly word used in the New Testament to describe people who follow Jesus. The word Christian is only actually used three times, and each time is with, with negative connotations. But the word disciple is used 268 times in the New Testament of people who follow Jesus. 
So we need to get our heads around it. And the passage I'm going to use to kick us off is Matthew chapter 28. So if you want to look that up with me, feel free to. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, which is the first of the Gospels, the second half of the Bible. And it's just at the end of, of the story of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. And he gathers his disciples together and says these words, starting in verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And if this passage feels familiar, it's because we actually preached on it about two months ago, and Saul and Andy did a brilliant job of walking you through verse by verse an exposition of this text. So if you'd like to hear that, please do go and check out the website. What I want to do tonight is to pull out one of the key phrases that Jesus uses, and it's in verse 19. So Jesus gives this call to his people, to the people he's called his disciples. He says, go and make more disciples. Do what I've done. And this commission, this sending word, is the birthplace of the church. It's what leads to us gathering in houses and in churches with, with steeples, in temples, and in warehouses to worship Jesus and to follow him. And so I'm going to explore, four, explore two things tonight. The, f- the first thing is, what does it mean for us to be a disciple? And then the second thing is, how then do we make disciples? So I'm going to do a bit of historical context initially for this first part. I love a bit of good historical context. And discipleship as a phrase was already a word that was used. It was already a context, a concept that was well understood in that time. Um, Jesus wasn't the one to invent it when he was doing this. Every Jewish rabbi had disciples. And the process of becoming one was pretty rigorous. In fact, there were three stages of learning required before you could even be considered as a disciple. So we're going to do some Hebrew together. Ready? So the first, the first tier of learning was called Beit Sefer. Why don't we say that together? Three, two, one. Beit Sefer. There you go. That's some Hebrew words for you. So that was kind of like primary school. So you did it up until the age of about 12. Um, it's for all Jewish children, boys and girls. And you'd learn how to read and write to do math. And you'd also learn how to read, you know, you'd memorize the first five books of the Bible. So let's see if we can get that in. So like about that much text, which is pretty crazy, isn't it? By the age of 12. So most, peop- most kids at that age would then stop learning. They would go on to the trade of their family. The girls would start to prepare to get married. But for those who were kind of the smarters, smarter people, the smarters, what was that? the smarter people in, in the group, they'd be offered the opportunity to go to the second tier of learning, which is called Beit Talmud. We did it well, so let's try again together. Three, two, one. Beit Well done, very good. So this was literally called the house of learning. And um, for the ages of about 12 to 16, the, the young men who were studying there would, wouldn't just memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. As part of their learning, they'd memorize the whole, or just about the whole of the Old Testament, what we call now. Let's see if I can get it. So it's like, there we go. That much. They'd memorize all of this. We think our schooling's hard, don't we? <laughs> I think I could be doing internship programs all wrong. We need to start doing that kind of thing. Um, so again, that would, most people, again, most people would stop at that stage. That's the second tier of learning. But for the very best of the very best, there would be an opportunity for them to do the third stage, which is the Talmudim. 
and we'll get you to say that, it's fine. And the Talmudim, we, they didn't just learn the whole of the Old Testament. They also had to know what the kind of controversial topics were, what the conversation pieces of the day, what the latest rabbi had been talking about. They had to know about everything that was going on in terms of interpretation of scripture as well as the reading of scripture. So these young men in the kind of 17, 18, would be the ones who might be offered the opportunity to become disciples. And a rabbi would approach them and interview them and grill them in all of these different topics. And if they were considered worthy enough, they'd be invited to become a disciple. And this wasn't really a part-time deal. This is quite an immersive thing. Once they were invited in, they spent all of their time with the rabbi. In fact, they spent the rest of their lives with him, living with him, journeying with him. There's this kind of old phrase that we've sometimes started to use again about covered in the dust of the rabbi. Essentially, it's because the, the disciples would be so close to them, they'd be literally covered in their dust of the, the feet of the rabbi as he walks. Um, and he's, they'd spend time living with him and starting to learn the way that he speaks, the things that he teaches, to the extent that actually they probably even memorize some, some of the, the kind of the ways that he moves, the ways that he acts, and all of his mannerisms, really. And eventually, he'd be offered the opportunity to, to do the same thing that the rabbi had done. They'd be invited to make their own disciples. So this is a, the process. Three stages of learning. It was the best of the best who became disciples. So the question is, is that what Jesus did? Did he invite the most learned scholars to become his disciples? And the best place for us to find that out is to look at the next page of Mark chapter 1. So we've just been in Matthew 28, Mark chapter 1. And let's have a look at a couple of occasions where Jesus invites people to become his disciples. Starting in verse 16, he says this. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. They know fishermen, so they were probably part of their family trade. Maybe he didn't even finish the first tier of learning. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little farther, farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Again, fishermen. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Got it for the hired men. <laughs> and then jump ahead to Mark chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Once again, Jesus went out to a lake. A large crowd became beside, came back to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and followed him. So knowing the context, knowing what we know about discipleship at the time, do we get how radical that was? That was completely countercultural. That Jesus didn't call the most learned scholars. These were the marginalized. These were the unlearned, the opposite. Levi would pretty much have been the lowest of the low in that culture, in that society. A Jewish tax collector was someone who took money from his own people, who charged taxes extortionately. These people were the people that Jesus approaches, and these are the people that Jesus invites to become his disciples. And then if we jump ahead one more time to Mark chapter 8. Jesus addresses Christ in verse 34. So I'm getting you to jump around lots tonight. And he says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple, take up the cross and follow me. Whoever, he says to a crowd of a thousand people. It's crazy. It'd be like me saying to all of you, if you stand up right now, I'm going to give you a University of Edinburgh doc doctorate. Forever you'll be known as doctor, your name. <laughs> it's like, but you don't need to go to uni. You don't need to do any studying. That's the kind of equivalent of the invitation that Jesus was asking them to, or this crowd of people. Jesus' invitation to this crowd was something normally reserved for the elite. 
And then as we follow in the rest of the Gospels, the invitation is followed up by a life spent with him. Three years, 12 men in particular, 12 disciples spent about 80% of their time with Jesus. And likewise, the other way around. And these were the fishermen, tax collectors. These were, these were the ordinary people, the unlearned. And he invites them up close to walk with him, to eat with him, to learn from him, to call home wherever he calls home, much like the rabbis did in Jesus' time. And for some of us, I actually just think we need to hear that truth, that there aren't a bunch of conditions to us becoming disciples. You don't need to have the right qualifications, the right standing, the right family background. The same invitation is for you. Jesus would say to you again and again, come, follow me. And it's an incredible invitation. And the one ask should be obvious. In fact, this is, this is the only kind of time in history where come follow me might not actually mean something literal because you could do it on social media, couldn't you? But the, the, the one ask is a willingness to follow. And the next part is take up your cross in verse 34 and follow me. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus' invitation is accompanied by an action to go where Jesus goes. And the crucial part for us tonight, for us to wrestle with, is that it's on his terms, not on ours. And actually, we were singing about that when we were singing this, that song earlier on, about Jesus being the one that leads us. And that's exactly what I'm talking about tonight. Jesus is looking for obedience, for us to walk where he goes, no matter if it means laying down our plans, our desires, our wants, going where he is. And for lots of us, we know that. It's part of our story, it's part of our history. If you've been baptized, you publicly said that in front of your church family. You said, I believe these things, and I'm going to pattern my life around that. I'm going to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. So we know it, but the danger is, I think, that in this journey of following Jesus, we can so easily forget that simple truth. We can think it somehow changes when we start to follow him more. As Carl would say, the way in is the way on. He says that quite a lot. The way in is the way on. And there's a writer called Dallas Willard who writes this quote, which will appear on the screen behind me here as well, if you can read it with me. He says this, The greatest issue facing the world today, with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heavens into every corner of his human existence. And that's quite a sobering quote, isn't it? In fact, it's, it's quite heavy for him to say that the greatest issue that this world faces, with all of the issues that it faces, is that Christians need to become disciples. So what does he mean by that? I think we can so easily fall into the trap of creating distance between what we know, what we believe, and the way that we live. We begin by knowing that discipleship is about following Jesus, and that's an active thing. But somewhere along the way, we start to think that it's more like the rabbis of Jesus' time treated discipleship. It's about what you know. It's about your status. And it's less about what you do. We can, and I think what happens then is it creep, what starts to creep into our, our discipleship story is it becomes something we do on our terms, not on Jesus' terms. As long as we say the right things, and we can get pretty good at that, if we're honest. I can get really good at that. 
I know when to say the right thing to help people think that I am a certain place when I'm not. But then we don't really need to follow Jesus. It doesn't actually need to have an impact on the way that we work, on the words and language that we use. It doesn't need to have an impact on the relationships that I pursue or the way that I spend money. And we can justify it to ourselves by saying, I know that I'm a Christian, I believe these things without having an impact on the things that we do. And don't get me wrong, this isn't a works gospel. This isn't me saying, this is the way that you're saved. Jesus has done all of that work for us. Instead, this is an invitation for us. It suggests that discipleship, following Jesus, is more than just knowing something. It's allowing that knowledge to have an impact in the way that you live, the way that you love people, and the way that you bring God's kingdom here on earth. I'm trying to cut down on sugar just now, just on, on weekdays, and I haven't actually told anyone that I'm doing it. And one of the hardest times for me to do it is on Tuesday, uh, Tuesday morning at 11 a.m., as uh, something that we've adopted at Central Staff called Fika, because we're really trendy. It's a Swedish snack time. We have homemade chocolate stuff, uh, temptation, and a perfectly formed cupcake. And as, as I'm biting into one of these like delicious devils, I'm, I, think, I think to myself, for just momentarily, <laughs> I shouldn't be having this. I'm trying to cut down on sugar as I take another bite from the cupcake. <laughs> so it, doing that once, is that going to completely undermine my idea to cut down on sugar? No, it's not. But if I make that decision a couple times every day, there was no real point to me thinking about cutting down on sugar initially, was there? <laughs> I might as well just have not decided to do that. And so thinking about our discipleship, what we believe has to have an impact in the way that we live. Our faith and our obedience should go hand in hand. And actually, I think what we find is when we allow that to happen, when they come back together, they both enrich and strengthen one another. When we live out our faith, when we love people the way that Jesus loves people, when we spend time in his presence like we have been tonight, doesn't it, doesn't it make us come alive? Doesn't it strengthen our foundations as we do these things together, do you know? And that's one of the primary reasons that we gather. This is one of the primary reasons we do this on a Sunday and why we gather in communities is because we want there to be a shift in the way that we live. That what we do together here, what we decide and what we read about in communities is supposed to help us take steps forward in the way that we follow Jesus. This isn't just a place for us to escape. It's a place for us to really find ourselves. It's a place to equip us, to transform us, and shape us to look more like Jesus. And it's for every other moment in our week. We aren't just about creating nice experiences here. And actually, if that's all this is, then we kind of have failed. This is about us helping you to encounter living Jesus in a way which has a real impact in the way that you live. That's why we do this. That's why we gather. That's why we have communities. So that's what it means for us to be disciples. And with all of that in mind, then how do, then do we make sense of the verse that we read at the start in Matthew chapter 28, if you want to flick back? What does it mean for us to make disciples? Does that mean that 12 lucky people get to become disciples of Zach and learn the joys of gardening and, and how to brew ginger beer? I've been doing that recently. It's been great fun. Not, not really. You can do that if you want to. You can come chat to me. <laughs> um, but it does suggest that actually there's something about us opening up our stories, our journey, which is open to all of us. That's, 
there's a process of making disciples and an active thing that we can all be involved in. And so for the last five or ten minutes or so, I just want to flip the narrative of what we've been reading so far and ask the question, how does Jesus go about making disciples and what can I learn from that? And essentially, there's so much that we could say on this topic. And I just want to focus in on one key point. The way that Jesus makes disciples is by making time for people. For us to be disciples who make disciples, we need to make time for people. It's obvious, right? But for most of us as millennials or Generation Z, and you don't need to fit into those categories, but for most of our generations, I think, it's got to be one of the biggest challenges that we face. I don't know if you've seen this meme going around. Has anyone seen that? The greatest miracle having 12 close friends in your 30s. <laughs> we, we love the idea of commitment, but we hate the reality of it, don't we? We love the idea of deep friendships. You may be take it away because people keep laughing at it when they figure out what you're saying. <laughs> Thanks. Um, we love the idea of deep friendships, of being there for people. We love the idea of being reliable, don't we? In fact, statistically speaking, we're crying out for that, for that sense of community and depth and relationship. But at the same time, if you give me four Facebook events every day for a week, I'll likely not reply to any of them, um, even if I intend on going to some of them. If you're lucky, I might say I'm interested. You know, it's like, thanks Facebook for giving me a button, which still allows me to not be committed to anything. But, but you know, at least I press something. That's, that makes me feel a bit better about it. We... We are so hardwired by this culture to fear missing out, to always want to keep our options open, and to react against making a commitment which might tie us down. It's commitment phobia. It's a real thing. And I think we're beginning to notice it. I think we're becoming more aware of that, that this culture has a real impact on our friendships and our relationships, on the way that we choose jobs or where we choose to live. If you're thinking about buying somewhere, maybe even do I commit to a five-year mortgage? Am I going to be there that long? That kind of stuff. Or even, do we accept the opportunity to become a leader? Because that requires commitment. And I think actually, going deeper, some of the anxiety we feel around making decisions, which I can feel definitely, of the idea of tying ourselves down to something, is more prevalent ever than ever before. And I don't think it's just the reality of becoming an adult. I think it's a pattern of this city, and I think it's a pattern of this world which we don't need to buy into. And I think the way that Jesus offers a solution, paradoxically, is to commit to people. So there's a friend of mine who is called Colin. And uh, Colin came around Central about six months ago, uh, about September last year. And he, um, he and I met just when he, first, when he first arrived. And we talked about him getting involved at Central. And he was, like, he was quite upfront about it at the start and said, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to stay that long. I might only be able to stay six months because my job might move me somewhere else. But even with that hanging over his head, he decided to commit to being around here, to getting to know people, to serving. And unfortunately, he did have to go. He left last weekend, which is really sad. Um, the worship team loved him. They affectionately called him Hoss, which was short for head of sound. <laughs> um, but we met up just before he left. And when we did, um, I, we sat down and talked about his time for the last six months. And he reflected on how much he loved being a part of things here and how invested he felt in felt, felt being here, and how much he's grown. Um, and I know for a fact, actually, the number of people have invested in him, who have, cho have chosen to journey with him and, and give him time, even though he's here for a short time. So why does I share that? Because we all have a choice about whether to commit to people or not. 
And there are plenty of valid excuses not to. We can say, well, I don't know where I'll be in six months, so it doesn't make sense for me to get to know people here. Or I might only be in this flat for a year, so there's not really that much point in me getting to know the people I'm living with. I've gotten to know people who are completely on the other end of the scale, who've taken years to choose to come to a church or to get stuck in somewhere or get to know people. And I think this all comes from this idea that it's really hard for us to commit. But the reality is the timing will never be perfect. And in fact, the excuses only get more convincing. And if you think back to what we were reading earlier on, do you know what the disciples were doing when Jesus called them to follow him? Remember, the four fishermen were actually just about to start a full day's work. They were in their boats, sorting out their nets. And Levi was already working that day. Their plans were pretty well established at that point, but they decided that the invitation to be disciples mattered more. And I think we have that same choice to make this a priority or to make it secondary in our lives. I know from my own story, being part of discipling people and being discipled is one of the biggest privileges of my life. And uh, it's something we're all invited to be, to be participating in, whatever stage we're at in our own journey. And ultimately, the growth of us as a church depends on all of us taking hold of this in some way. And for the last six months as well, I've also been journeying with a couple of leaders who come to Central, and they're brilliant leaders, and it's been so much fun to hang out with them. Um, I think if we, when we first started meeting, if we were all honest, we were probably a little bit overcommitted, a little bit tired. It felt like an extra thing to add to a diary of already busy schedules. Um, but we've chosen, anyway, to meet every couple of weeks, to eat together, to reflect on our pace of life, and to pray through how we can create more space in our lives for God and for people. And uh, one of the last times that we met, it was so encouraging that every one of us could articulate a better rhythm in our weeks to meet with God and to see people. And I don't think that any of us have got it perfect. I don't think we, any of us will. But it's been such a privilege to see that growth and be part of it myself as well. And I could, couldn't commit to do that with 100 people. It would be impossible and I would get tired and burnt out. But I can commit to do it with some and I'm so glad that I made that decision. So for us, what do we do with this? Where do I start, you might be thinking. And I, I know we've already been talking about it quite a lot, but can I please recommend communities to you? Because they, they're totally hardwired this way. They're supposed to be places which develop you, which help you to invest in others, which create spaces for discipleship. If you don't see one that you like the sound of, and then feel free to start one. We'd love to help you start one. And you don't need to be an amazing, really, really mature Christian to do that as well. You just need to be someone who's willing to say, I'm happy to invest in others and to open up my life and my story of following Jesus with other people. And second, some of you might be thinking, but the main issue for me is I just don't know who those people are. And what I don't want you to leave tonight thinking is suddenly you've got to make 12 new friends. This isn't, this isn't something that you're adding to an already full to-do list. This is an invitation for us tonight to become more attentive to the people around us. Because the best place for us to begin with this is the people we already know. The people already in front of us. Not literally. But we, we begin with the people who are already in our lives that we can pay better attention to. Who we can invite in to walk with as we follow Jesus together. And I think as part of that we say no to the things which will get in the way of that. That's the filter of how we organize our weeks. 
Because we can't, the reality is we can't invite every person that we know on Facebook into that kind of journey, into that kind of relationship. But we can invite some. We can be part of some people's journey. And actually 12 is quite a good number. Jesus chose a good number, I think. So I'm going to finish up there. And just as we go back into time of worship, I hope what you've been hearing tonight is that this is a vision for all of us. It's not just for some. It's not just for the leaders who've got everything together. And I wonder if we can maybe respond by doing something a bit different together just now. Um, whether we know this or are already doing it, or whether maybe we, we did know it but haven't done it for a while, whether this is the first time we've heard this kind of vision for us being people who follow Jesus, who invite others in to follow Jesus. I'd love it if we could make this commitment again together as a church to say that we're for this, that we're for developing people and seeing people look more like Jesus each day. And so if you want to be part of that with, with me, then I'd love it if you'd stand just now and I'm going to pray for those of you who just want to be part of it. So why don't we stand together? if you want to. <laughs> Jesus, I thank you so much for all of these people here, everyone who's standing and saying that they, they want to do what you did. They want to follow in your footsteps. They want to live a life close to you and to invite others into that same journey. I just want to pray for any, anyone here who's, who doesn't really know where to begin with that, who feels like they don't have a depth of friendship with people to begin. I just want to pray that you'd be revealing to them the right people, that you'd be gathering people around them just now, that, and even just bringing to mind names of people that they should be investing in and spending time with. And, and for all of us, God, I just pray that you help us to ensure that our what we believe and the way that we live lines up more and more each day. Would you forgive us for where we, we know that we haven't, because we all make mistakes. And would you just refresh us and remind us of this truth again, that you are with us and you call us to go with you every day.